Good morning, Sunrise. It's the first Sunday after Easter. I always say this is my favorite time for worship because you can just pick all the Easter songs you want, and it's just awesome. So, our Redeemer lives. Let's stand up and sing.
was buried beneath my shame who could carry that kind of weight it was my tomb till I met you I was breathing but not alive all my failures I tried to my soul now your freedom is all that I know the old made new Jesus when I met you is when you called my name I ran out of that grave sin was heavy but chains break at the weight of your glory I needed shelter I was an orphan now you call me a citizen of heaven when I was broken you were my healing now your love is the air that I'm breathing I have a future my eyes are open cause when you
Go ahead and turn to one of your neighbors and give them a fist bump or bump elbows or shake hands and just greet each other. Check, check, check. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is an exciting weekend because we're just still living in that Easter energy, and um, it's awesome. We have a new future in Christ. And so if you're new here, we just, we just want to invite you to check out the welcome table, uh, fill out an info card. Um, it helps us because we're able to kind of get some reminders out to you. We're able to pray for you. We're able to get connected to you. And um, this morning, actually, after the service, we have a new to sunrise gathering. And that just allows you to kind of get to know a little bit more about the church and meet some of the staff and elders. And so we invite you to stay, even if you didn't let us know. Um, I think we have plenty of food and um, we just invite you to stay for lunch. So um, and also everybody that helped with uh, Good Friday and Easter. Thank you so much. Um, can we just give everybody a round of a man? What a! It takes a lot of folks to uh, to pull off a weekend like that. We had people helping in the parking lot because we didn't have parking, and um, just a lot of things. Um, a lot of people helping in a lot of amazing ways. So, um, also, it's about time for VBS, and so if you want to be a part of uh, the VBS team, I think there's a meeting coming up on the 25th, um, kind of get some more information on that. So enough with the announcements. Um, every, uh, every so often we uh, take time to have somebody come up here and share their God story. And so Tim's going to come up, Tim Williams, if you want to come up. And uh, I'm just going to pray for him and then he's going to share with you guys what God's put on his heart. So um, Tim's in my guys group, and so I have the privilege of just getting to walk, do life with this guy. So I'll just pray for you. God, we just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the way that you work in our lives in unexpected ways. And I just thank you for how you have uh, just been a part of Tim's life for all these years. And I just thank you for what he's going to share with us. Just give him uh, the words to say, calm his, his mind and his heart. And just let him share what's on, what's on his heart and on your heart. We just pray for him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, everybody. So four or five weeks ago when Pastor Brent asked me to share my testimony, um, he gave me the choice of, of doing it on video or sharing it in person. And I thought, oh, man, I can do it in person. It's no problem. I speak in front of people all the time. And it's a decision I'm really starting to regret second guess maybe so uh i don't know if we can redo that pastor brent but maybe if we can no so um my family moved to lagrange in in 1983 we had lived in colorado before that and i don't have a lot of uh memories of, of my about god before then but um i know i was uh, saved at a at a young age my mom and dad i was very lucky to have uh two godly parents and um, 
my dad came to, moved us to LaGrange to go to the Bible school so that he could become a pastor, which he did for a short time. But so a lot of my memories start when we, when we got to LaGrange. Um, my mom taught Sunday school and worked in Iwanas. We were always a part of the church and, and, um, yeah, I was very lucky to ha to have them and the, and the leadership and the example that they shared for us with, as our family. So I really don't think I, I truly started to understand what it meant to be saved and what it meant to be uh, a child of God until I was a little bit older. And I was lucky enough to have a Sunday school teacher by the name of Bill Rostad that um, was able to relate God's word to real life experiences. And it was at that time that I really started to maybe understand a little bit uh, better what it, what it was about to be saved, but for whatever reason, um, it just really, I don't know. I played the part, I went to church, um, but it just, I didn't give in. I, I didn't surrender myself to God at all. And then uh, every once in a while, uh, Pastor Don Mathodist would come and speak at the church and, and he always had a, a, a sermon that just absolutely sparked a, an internal fight within me that just got me to thinking about things and but I still just kept fighting God and um, when I was about 16 they offered an opportunity to be baptized and it was just another check mark that I could make and that thing that you were supposed to do and I probably wouldn't have done it but it was Pastor Don and I just thought the world of him and so um, I was baptized but just continued to do you know my own thing and and hang out with the friends that I had and and just kind of go down that uh, walk of life where um, I was trying to check those boxes so about my junior year of college um, from from for whatever reason till you know I was 28 or 29 years old I just walked away for, from God and for no other reason than I just made that choice um, I like I said my mom and dad were great examples uh, of godly people and, and they lived that and so I can't blame anything I wasn't abused I wasn't I was raised in a, in a great home and I know my mom and dad loved me so um, it was just simply my choice and so um, I felt like re religion was really something that had been you know just kind of poked down my throat and so I was going to show everybody and and just you know going to church wasn't as fun as going out at night and and partying and doing those kinds of things so that just kind of, I just, I got a job at Southeast and, and uh, as a teacher and, and, and as a coach, and I didn't really realize that how my lifestyle contributed to the amount of anger that I just had with, within me. And unfortunately, you know, I let that out in the, in the wrong ways. And, and, but kind of the beginning point of, of turning things around was, was August 16th, 2002. And uh, I'd grown up with a kid named, by the name of Todd Ranking. He was my best friend from the day, the first Sunday we moved to LaGrange. Um, we met at church, and, and when we told people that in the future, Dad was like, no way you two met at church. But it's true, we did. Um, but on August 16th, it was just another day. Um, him and I went out with some friends that night, and, and uh, we closed down the bar here in town, and went to a house afterwards and, and continued to drink. And when I had my fill, I decided I was gonna go home and I asked Todd to come with me. I knew he wasn't in any, any condition to drive home. He was living with his mom and dad up on Bear Mountain. 
And uh, he wasn't having none of that. And so we argued about it for a while, and I just finally gave up and went home. So the next morning, uh, very early, uh, I can't remember exactly what time, 6.30, 7 o'clock, I got a phone call from another fr good friend of ours, and he had just come up on the wreckage of Todd's pickup. He had uh, ran off the road, overcorrected, and uh, was thrown out of the vehicle as it rolled across the road on Highway 13, just a couple miles uh, east of the turn there as you head to Chugwater. And he was, he was killed, um, pronounced dead uh, at, at the scene. And as we went out there, and, and um, I don't think I realized until years later the impact that it had on me, is we went out there and the highway patrolman asked us to pick up Todd's stuff and uh, as they were investigating what was going on. And, and as we're picking up his stuff, I mean, Todd's laying there on the ground, um, not even covered up. And, and that just made me even more angry. And I guess my solution to that was just to turn even farther away from God because there's no way that, that a good God could, could let something like that happen. And so just kind of crawled, you know, into the lifestyle of a lot of alcohol and, and a lot of um, treating people, people poorly and, and just thinking that I knew everything. And, but as time went on, um, noticed a building being built on the north side of the road, of Highway 26, and you went to Scott's Bluff, and, and uh, every time you went by, it had a little bit more progress on it, and then you started to hear about, you know, it was going to be another church, and started to hear about this this guy that was preaching there, and, and um, something in the back of my mind, you know, it was always there with me. I knew what right and wrong was. I knew that what I was doing was wrong, but I really didn't care, but uh, after I heard enough about Scott and his, and his preaching and, and kind of the, his story of how things had gone for him before he became a pastor, I was like, I, I got to check this out. So I went one Sunday, um, mad at the world, sat in the back row, uh, no intention of really anything, I guess, just there to see what the show was all about. And... Uh, As Scott started to preach, and this day, like many other days, when he was at Mitchell Berean and then here, it was like he had shown a spotlight right on me, and I mean, he was preaching to me. Um, it didn't feel like there was really anybody else there, and, and I did not like that. So, you know, I was going to show God. I just didn't go back. And so, um, for a couple months, it just kind of ate at me, and ate at me, and ate at me. So finally, I started going back, and the first Sunday I went back, Scott shared his full story uh, of how, how he became saved. And I thought, wow, how, how amazing it was that God could be a God of grace and a, and a God of mercy and love and save somebody like that, that had lived that kind of lifestyle. And I thought, well, you know, I guess there, there's a chance, you know, that, that maybe I'm going to come back. And, and so... I did, um, slowly started, or sorry, so slowly stopped feeling sorry for myself so much, um, still blamed God for a lot of the stuff that, that went on, and 
And one Sunday, Scott caught me after the service and asked if I wanted to go to supper with him some night. He was roping over here and said, you know, we could just go grab a bite to eat real quick before he came over and, and roped. And I thought, well, no pastor had ever really showed much interest in uh, getting to know me or, or having really anything to, to do with me. So I thought, yeah, you know, why not? What could it hurt? So we met at Burger King um, one night, and, and um, I, had, I had no clue what to say. I was scared to death. And, but as Scott prayed over our meal, it, it, God just kind of helped me relax, and we started having a conversation, and, and I really felt like, man, if, if God can save this dude sitting across from me, sure, you know, he can do it for me too, and so it kind of opened up to Scott. I don't remember a lot of what we talked about, but when I got home, I just, I just cried. I mean, for for quite a while, I felt I was so ashamed of the things that I had done, the way I had treated people, um, the way I had acted in a, in a lot of things, and so, you know, I was like, Scott, that really hooked me. It was. Uh, was exactly what I needed. So as God started to work on me, you know, every Sunday, like I said, Scott's sermons seemed to be directed directed right at me. And so it was about this time also that, you know, as things started to turn around, I went on my first date with a, a fellow teacher out at Southeast. And uh, it was my wife, Renee. Um, and she was exactly what I needed. I mean, she was fun. She was caring. She was patient. Um, the only thing at the beginning, she had two girls, and I was like, man, I don't know about this. But it didn't take too long, and I was, I was pretty sure about it. Um, they were great kids and, and still are, and, and uh, about a year later, in November, 8, we, November of 2008, we got engaged in the most awkward way that you could ever do it. Probably should have YouTubed something. It would have been way better than what I did. So... Uh, <laughs> We were sharing a meal together, and, and uh, I had hidden the ring underneath the top napkin in the, in the little basket there on the table, and Renee always used a napkin, always. And for whatever reason, that day she didn't. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, man, come on. I mean, just take a napkin. And I said that, and, and we've laughed years later about, she's like, man, what are you, my father? I mean, come on. <laughs> and so finally she, she took that napkin and... and uh, <laughs> she thought it was one of the girls' play rings. And, but it, soon enough, it, realization came and, and set in that it was a real ring. And, and so that's how we were engaged. And in, in, in June of, of 2009, on a typical Wyoming day, up at the, the Bucking Horse Shimmicks owned it. At that time, we were married outside, had the reception inside. I mean, the wind blew 40 miles an hour all day long. But we were determined we were having it out, outside, so we did. And so um, June 6, 2009, is still a day that just sticks out with me because, I mean, God gave me the perfect mate, and, and um, it has truly been wonderful. And, and the girls that she brought into the marriage, Aaron and Emily, I mean, I knew there was going to be growing pains, and um, there were. Well, Renee was, was patient with me. You know, when you're dating somebody that has kids, you're kind of like a grandparent. You can go over and see them, get them all riled up, and then leave. And, uh, uh, you know, when you finally get married and, and you're living together, 
you know, there's a lot of responsibility there. And, and um, but I have two of the best daughters. Well, sorry, Cameron, you weren't there yet, but two of the best daughters I could ever ask for. And um, wonderful girls. And in November 2010, Cameron, uh, we were blessed with her. And, and um, God continued to work on me. And we attended church in, in Mitchell. And then we were ecstatic when Scott and Diane moved over here and, and started Sunrise. So, and with God's help, through Scott, through Paul, um, all of you guys that have had um, something to do with, with bringing me closer to God, I, I, I truly thank you. And Scott asked me one time to, to join a texting group where you read a chapter every day and then text a, a verse to that group. And that was the first time I'd ever read all the way through the Bible. And so one too long after that, some other couples and, and Renee and I got into a life group and, and started doing that. And um, I, cherry, I truly cherish that time and, and just the, the strengthening that goes on there. And, and um, unbeknownst to us that in 2016, it was a good thing that, that God was strengthening us because we were about to go through the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. Um, in November, I'd gone out to a conference in Las Vegas, a, a um, school security conference, and Renee called one night. And said the doctor needed her to come back and have an ultrasound because they'd seen something in her year, uh, yearly mammogram. And we had a biopsy not long after that and she was diagnosed with breast cancer and nothing prepares you for seeing somebody in a hazmat suit making some concoction that they're about to pump into your loved one anybody that's ever um, helped someone through cancer I mean I'm sure you know what you t what I'm talking about and so um, but God in truly miraculous ways, you know, he got, he got us through all of that, and and it was a good thing I had him because you just sit there and you're just truly as the spouse of someone that's going through that, you're totally helpless. There is no other thing that you can do than to rely on God and pray to God, and um, that's so that's what I did, and and uh, God saw fit to to completely heal Renee and. And it wasn't, this, was, this is going to sound bad, but it, it wasn't until that moment until I truly knew how much I loved my wife. I mean, I didn't know that love existed like that before then, but, but uh, God taught me how much I truly loved her. He taught me patience to rely on him. So many different lessons that came out of that whole thing. And uh, so... That just kind of brings me to today, and I, I stand before you still broken, still messed up, um, by no means have it, have it, everything in, in order or anything like that, but at least I realize now how gracious God is and how merciful he is and how he loves us all. Isaiah forty-one thirteen says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. And I really don't know what else we could ask for. So in closing, I, I just want to encourage any of you that are not a part of a life group or a Bible study of some sort, um, 
we were very hesitant at first, but having been a part of one, I, I, I don't know for how long now, several years, it's an amazing opportunity and it's an amazing opportunity to grow and to share and have people praying for you. And, and I don't know that I would have ever gotten through some of the things that we have with, without that and without God. So thank you. A lot of us men in the church have been partaking in men's group study and this last week I've been honored to be able to be in Tim's group and so we were able to pray over him this last week before he gave his testimony and <clears throat> it's just amazing how God puts these different times in your life. This last week we were talking about choices and how one of the first hardest big decisions, big choices you make is to accept God into your life and to have that be your sole livelihood and to rely on him. <clears throat> and the next biggest thing is to get up here in front of somebody or a whole church body and give your testimony. So it's just awesome to see how God works in our lives as we make those choices. Let's stand up and continue to worship. speak against my borrowed innocence the judge is my defense i'm going free right when the gavel fell i heard a freedom bell ring through the heart of hell i'm going free i'm going free glory glory just not who I am. Lord, I'm a brand new man. I'm going free. I'm on a narrow road. It's paved with grace and hope. It's gonna lead me home. I'm going free. I'm going free.
Someday I'll fly away on your amazing grace. Your love is my jailbreak. I'm going free. sorrow and dead in my sin lost without hope with no place to begin your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began ash was redeemed only beauty heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes chains I'm a prisoner no more my shame was a ransom he faithfully rejoice as though heaven had lost but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand that's when death was arrested and my life began when death was arrested and my life began 
so thankful for everything you've given us. You sent your one son down to, to redeem all of our sins. We couldn't ask for anything more. We just ask that you be with us as we make the choices to follow you and ultimately live our lives to satisfy you. We're here to give you a holy noise for you to listen to, and that's why we're here. Be open with our hearts and open our hearts to the message that you have for us today. And bless us as we move forward. In Jesus' name. Well, good morning, Sunrise. It's a little hot, Curtis. <laughs> we worried about because he hadn't checked the mic yet, and I said, that's okay as long as it's not too loud to start with. So, appreciate your testimony this morning, Tim. It's, uh, if it's any consolation to you, it's now on video. So, I don't know whether that'll help or not, but it's now on video. So, yesterday at men's breakfast, we heard another testimony. Justin Barnes shared his story with us. We've heard Charlie's testimony in recent weeks. The common theme that I hear and, and what I heard in Tim's story is that when we're honest about the ups and downs in our lives and the, the good times and the bad times in our walk with God, God honors that. Because in reality, that's what life is all about. I was thinking here as I stood back at the back this morning that, that in reality everybody in this room today is in some sort of a cycle of up or down. Tragedy or just a high point in your life and marriage and family or in between and transition. That's the reality of life. And, and God works in all those things. And, and when we are honest and open with one another about our failings and about those hard times and the difficulty of that, God uses that in a, in a powerful way. I, I love the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
in which it talks about how the God of all comfort comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort whereby we were comforted. That's the essence of Christian counseling and the essence of Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. It's as, as we walk through something and God gives us the ability to walk through something hard, then when we see someone else going through that, we're the best person in the world to share with them because we understand the ins and outs of that. And so I just encourage you to, to share your life experiences and your walk with God with those around you, even those that may not have a relationship with Christ because those things just, they, they resonate with people and, and they're powerful. You don't have to have three books of the Bible memorized to share your life story. God can use that in a powerful way. And so that's my, that's my encouragement to you today. This morning we're going to start a new series. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, it's my goal over these of the next few years that to, to chronologically go through the Bible, just teach through that. We'll have series in the New Testament and, and thematic series and other things, but, but I want to systematically move us through so that we have a picture of the, the full purpose and the plan of God. Because I think that's just so critically important as, we, as, as you spend time in God's Word that you understand what each section and what each um, period has to do with God's plan for the ages. So we're going to start the next six weeks. We're going to be in the book of Judges. And Judges is just a, it's just a weird book. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's It's transitional. Uh, there was a, Moses was the, the great spiritual leader, and Joshua became the, the next military leader and, and led Israel through the time of conquest. When you get through the book of Judges and you get into First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you're in the period in which there was a king, there was a monarch. But for, for whatever purpose for this 350-year period in Israel's history, God chose to not have or not allow them an established, recognized, anointed leader. He, he gave them everything they needed. They were settled in the land. Um, but he didn't set apart a leader for them. And it just makes for a, a really, just a really odd time. Because we are, we are as, as human beings, we are so keyed in to earthly leaders. In, in fact, sometimes more so than is healthy. And, and we, we want to see someone that we can look to and recognize and see them in a position of authority. It makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. But God, in his sovereignty, determined that for this period in Israel's history that he wasn't going to do that. And so throughout the book of Judges, it's just a, you know, I, I call it the dark ages of the Old Testament. It's just, just strange stuff, bizarre characters and, and odd circumstances and left-handed warriors and overweight kings and just all kinds of stuff. And so we're going to venture into that. Uh, on Mother's Day, we're going to talk about the story of Ruth because that came at the, during the period of the judges. So where was Israel? Joshua had died. Um, all of the land that they had conquered within the, the, the area of Canaan had been allotted to the 12 tribes. Each, each tribe had their allotted area. They, the people were living in the land in relative safety. The law was in effect. They were worshiping as, as God had intended. The tabernacle was there for them to do sacrifices and do everything like, like they had done in the wilderness. They had the priests. Um, they continued to celebrate the festivals. And so, in reality, everything that God wanted and desired in, in, in Jewish society was there. 
what, what could possibly go wrong? Well, this morning we're going to find out what could go wrong. I want to show you a couple maps this morning, just because I like maps. And uh, it's, it's fun in, in Bobby and I's marriage because God puts opposites together. Bobby doesn't like maps. And so when I start showing maps, and then I know that when I run that by her, then I need to be limited in my maps because not everybody likes maps. So first thing I want to show you is just there's going to be a lot of terminology and a lot of different people we're going to be introduced to in the book of Judges, and I want to kind of show you a map of, of the land of Canaan. All right, that's way smaller than I anticipated. All right, so anyway... This, this is the whole land that they conquered, and, and the little red lines, if you can see those, are, are the path that they took and how they conquered the land. But there's going to be a whole lot of names that you see in the book of Judges that are ites. I like to call them the ites. There's the Amalekites and the Edomites, and then down here off the map is the Midianites that, were, that, that, that Gideon fought against, and the Moabites and the Amorites and the Ammonites, Kenites, Jebusites. So anyway, there's lots of ites. Philistines are a big part of the book of Judges, and that was the area that they possessed. And so as, as Israel went in and, and began to, to take control of this land of Canaan, these were the peoples that they had to displace, that God said, I'm, I'm giving you this land, and I want you to drive them out. I want you to defeat them. I want you to push them out, completely push them out. All right, so let's just pull up the second map. This is a picture in the green. This is a little easier to see. This is, as we begin the book of Judges, this is the area that Israel actually possessed, that they had control over. They had pushed the enemies in those areas out, but if you notice, all around the perimeter was their enemies. They stayed there. They didn't push the Philistines completely out, or the Ammonites, or the Moabites, or, or those up in the northern end. They, they stayed in the land. And as we get into the book of Judges, that's going to be going to become a huge thing for Israel. Because God said, I'm giving you this land. I want you to push them out. I, I want their influence to be gone. And Israel was not faithful in completing that task. And as time goes by, we'll find out that that was not healthy for them. So I want to begin this morning by verse um, Joshua chapter 21, the very last book in, in verse in the Bible. And that's kind of the theme verse for the entire book. And it says this, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And that's our series in the book of Judges, in their own eyes. Without an earthly leader, people seemed to take it upon themselves to do what seemed right to them. I, as I was studying this, the, particularly this last week, I couldn't help but think, is, is that not a characteristic phrase for the days in which we live? Doesn't that fit? Is, is, you know, you talk about history repeating itself, and that's kind of the days in which we live. Uh, the influence of God has been taken out of our society in many places, and people just do what seems right to them, and it's perfectly natural. So that's where we are, and that's what characterizes this period in Israel's history. So let's start off in Judges chapter 1. And just, I want to work through the first couple chapters and just kind of lay out some, some framework of, of what the rest of the book is going to look like. So as Israel became, came on the scene and Joshua passed from the scene, uh, Israel started out very strong. They had a strong beginning. 
In the opening verses of Judges 1, 1 through 3, it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up to first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I've given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites, and we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So the nation started strong. The first thing they did is they asked the Lord. That's, that's a good first step to any decision you have to make. They asked the Lord, what should we do? Who should go up? How should we fight? How we, should we proceed in completing what the task that you gave us to drive these people out? And so God answered their prayer because that was part of his plan and purpose. Um, Judah, tribe of Judah, you're the biggest tribe. You're the one there in the center of the land. You should be the leaders. Okay, we're willing to do that. So they talked to their neighbors, the Simeonites, and they said, would you go with us to help begin to push the rest of the peoples out of the land and conquer them militarily? And Simeon said, yes, we will, and then we'll cooperate in that. All positive things. Asking God, doing what God said, cooperating with their neighbors, working together in the plan and the purpose that God had for the nation. But that was short-lived. By the time we get to chapter 2, we begin to see that the memories of Israel was short. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. We read, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all of the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that, the, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. One generation. The generation that had witnessed the parting of the Jordan River. The generation that had witnessed the fall of the walls of Jericho. That had witnessed God giving them victory over enemies and cities that were far greater and more significant than them. That generation died off. And the next generation did not pick up the faith and the belief that the previous generation had. And so their memories were very short. All of a sudden, in one generation, they went from, from faithfully standing in awe of the power and the might and the significance of God on their behalf to a nation that had forgotten what God had done and the power that He had manifest as He'd given them victory in the land of Canaan. So their memories were short. And so as the new generation began to assume leadership and, and walk into those positions of, of power and authority, we find that the nation fell into their old tendencies, things that had plagued them in the past. Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, tells us what happened. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. 
Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them they were in great distress. Old tendencies. Do you remember as we studied the book of Exodus that, that God had miraculously brought the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt through the ten plagues and the miracles from God's hand, and, and he'd brought them out with great possessions and wealth. They went and began their journey, and they came to the, to the side, to the shore of the Red Sea, and God, in an unprecedented miracle, opened that sea so that the entire nation could pass through, and then the sea was closed back on the Egyptian army. For 40 years, God had, had per, um, kept them in the wilderness, and yet no sooner had they crossed through the Red Sea and Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments that Israel made a golden calf, one of the gods, one of the idols of Egypt, and began to worship it in Moses' absence of 40 days. And so Israel was prone to idolatry and to take up foreign gods. And, and we see that exact same tendency happen here as they are in the promised land. They began to associate with and intermarry with and become familiar and comfortable with their enemies that were on the outside. And those enemies, the reason that God caused Israel or told Israel to destroy them and push them out is because they were under the judgment of God because of their idol worship. The mention there of the Baals and the Ashtoreths, those were two of the predominant idols that, that the Canaanites and the surrounding people worshipped. The Baals were a, a series of different gods, that some that had to do with, with crops and seasons and other things. And the Ashtoreths were false idols that had to do with fertility. And nearly all of the worship around them had to do with, with sexual deviant activities. The, the picture in your bulletin on the, on the right side of the glasses is one of the bales because any of the pictures of the idols of the Ashtoreths is not something that I would want to put on the front page of a bulletin in a mixed crowd because those idols were, were gross and, and sexually deviant and, and just problematic. But that's the gods that Israel turned to as they forgot the God that brought them into the land in which they were living. And so God, in His sovereignty and mercy, I, I love the, the theme of God's grace and mercy in Tim's story this morning because that's a lot, that's a lot of what God was and, and, and the way He was with the nation of Israel. God, in His mercy, delivered them from these enemies that came in against them. In Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with that judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up the evil practices, their evil practices and stubborn ways. So God sent judges. They were the earthly leaders during the period of, of this book, this 350-year period. Judges, they were deliverers, they were saviors, they, they were all sort of, of people from society. There were six of them that were strong military leaders. 
Samuel was the last judge, and he was a priest and a prophet. Eli was a judge, as you get into the book of 1 Samuel, and he was the high priest of Israel at that time. There was a woman judge, Deborah. There was a timid, timid judge, Gideon. There was a judge with long hair, Samson. All different people that God raised up and empowered to deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies once again. And as we go through this book, the, the, the book of Judges is set up systematically in that each region of Israel has a judge that at some point in time during this period, God raised them up and gave them power to deliver Israel from a different one of their enemies. The southern area we start with, and then the northern and the central and the east and the west. And that's the way the book is chronologically set out. So, new deliverers that God sent out. But the reality is, all around the nation of Israel, if you remember that map, last map that we looked at, their bitter enemies were waiting on their doorstep. And God in His sovereignty chose to use those enemies as a means to discipline the nation of Israel. Even though those enemies were there in the first place because of their disobedience, God used them to get Israel's attention time and time again. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. It says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Isn't that just like God? That in our disobedience, He uses that in a sovereign way to bring about obedience. That's what God did. He allowed those nations to remain there, and they became the discipline, God's discipline for the nation of Israel when they were unfaithful. Within the book of Judges, we see seven times what we call a cycle of sin. There's another slide I'll have you put up real quick. I want to just go through this because this is, if, if you want to know what the book of Joshua or Judges is all about, this is a picture of it. So they came into the land and they served the Lord. They walked with Him. Remember those opening verses? Lord, what, we, what should we do? And they began to walk in that. Then when that generation passed away, Israel fell into sin and idolatry. They began to adopt the practices and, uh, and intermarry with those enemies around them. And then God disciplined them by allowing those enemies to come back in and enslave Israel. Israel, after they'd got enough of it, cried out in humility and confession to the Lord. God, in His mercy and grace, raised up a judge. They delivered Israel. Israel continued to walk, came back and began to walk with God, and the cycle repeats itself again. Seven times in the book of Judges, we see this exact cycle repeat itself. And as I was looking through that again this week, I've been familiar with that for, for many years, that, that's a picture of our walk with God individually in a lot of, in a lot of ways. We'll, we'll begin to walk away from God in some area of our life or, or some intentional disobedience. And God in His sovereignty, 
He's jealous for us. He loves us. He wants our best. And he will put something in our lives that will get our attention. Sometimes it's hardship. Sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes, whatever the case may be. And as that hits us, we become aware of our sin and we fall on our knees and God brings us through the difficult time and we come to a place in which we walk with faithfulness before God once again and then we're back where God wants us over and over again. That, that, that's the reality of my Christian life. That's the reality of our walk with God. That's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. So this morning as we close, I, I want us to notice what I call seeds of trouble. What was it within the nation of Israel that, that, that tended to or, or made them lean towards falling into these sinful practices? The first thing I see is a trouble with leadership. You know, God in His sovereignty determined that Israel for this period would be without a king and without a military leader and without a strong spiritual leader like they had in Moses. What's the purpose in that? Well, you know, in reality, God had given them everything as a society that they needed. They had the law, and the law talked about this is the way you worship. This is the way that, that, the, that the criminal justice, quote-unquote, system works. This is the social laws. This is the moral laws. It's all there. And as long as they had a high priest and they had the Levites to serve in the temple and lead them in worship, that should have been adequate for them to walk successfully before God. But they, like us, feel like we have to have a human figurehead in control. And because of that, because they were looking for a, a human leader, they didn't look to God. The reality was, for Israel, they were a theocracy. That means that, that God was to be their supreme ruler, the one they looked to, the, way they came, the one they came to, the one they relied upon. But they wanted somebody that they could see. And since they didn't have somebody that they could see, they were pulled away. And they didn't see their walk with God and their spiritual life as being adequate to sustain them. And I think that is a, that is a, a tendency that we all can very easily have. You know, in reality, it tells us in, in 1 Peter, that, or 2 Peter, that, that God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. What does that mean? It means that me and my walk before God, God gives me by the power of His Holy Spirit and by His Word what I need each day to function and walk in victory. Now, Scripture also teaches about friends and, and brothers and sisters coming together and encouraging each other. And, and it talks about pastors and leadership, and that's all part of it. But at the end of the day, my relationship with God has to be the foundational relationship of my life. And, and I, I can't be drawn away to having to have an earthly leader. God wants me to trust Him. He wants me to trust Him. And so leadership and, and the way that Israel was towards leadership was a seed of trouble. The second thing that I noticed that was a seed of trouble was their obedience. In Judges chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, I'll just summarize this. It goes through a list of each of the tribes of Israel, and after that list it says, and they did not drive out the people that they were supposed to. And they did not drive out the people that they were supposed to. And they allowed the people to remain in the land. God told them at the very beginning, drive them all out. I don't want them 
to influence you. I don't want you to intermarry with them. I want them gone. And yet they didn't obey. Well, they partially obeyed. Partial obedience is disobedience. We don't like to think about it that way because it's, that seems a little harsh. But if we only partially obey what God tells us to, that's disobedience. And that's what Israel did. And that was a seed of trouble. That was one of the things that, that led them down the path to walking away from God. How does that look in our lives? Most of the time, it's easier to obey partially than it is fully. And what do we use for an excuse? Well, that, that seems really harsh. You know, that's kind of old-fashioned. That's, that's not practical. That's, that's outdated. It's old school. But in reality, when God says, do this or don't do this, He wants us to fully obey that because He has our best interest in mind. So Israel disobeyed by only partially obeying. The next thing I see in the nation was that disobedience always has consequences. Always has consequences. And there again, that's something that we don't, we, don't, we don't like to believe that. We like to believe that there's things in my life that, that I do in private. There's thought processes and things that, that go on that nobody else knows about. And, and those aren't, those aren't going to have a consequence. But in reality, disobedience always has a consequence. For the nation of Israel, as they allowed those people to remain, their influence remained. And they began to intermarry. My son sees a Moabite woman that he was, thinks is really cute. And, and I think we could bring her into our family and we could convert her. Well, she brings her gods with her. And she brings her religion with her. And that becomes a place of influence in the society. Disobedience always has consequences. I like the picture of a plowed field. Those of you that have been around here a long time know what a plowed field or a rototilled garden is like. And when you first make tracks through that soft ground, it's hard to walk and difficult because your foot sinks in and it takes a lot of effort. That's the first time we sin. The next time we walk across that ground, the pathway's a little easier. Not as much resistance. And after we've traveled that path several times, it's just as easy to walk there as it is to walk on the sidewalk. That's the consequences of sin. And that's the way sin multiplies and magnifies in our life. Oh, it's just a thought. Oh, it's just a little white lie. Oh, it's just a... I like to think of when I listen to somebody's story, the reality is when I see people that, that have fallen into rebellion away from God... The difference between them and me is one decision. One decision. Making a choice of disobedience, and I have no idea what the long-term consequences of that are. And that's what happened to Israel. Disobedience always has consequences. Galatians chapter 6. I love, I love this partially because it's an agricultural illustration, but mostly because it's something we can all relate to. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. When I make a decision, good or bad, it's like dropping a seed in the soil. 
What's the principle of a seed? Three principles of reaping and sowing. Whatever I sow is what I'm going to reap. If I plant a seed of corn, it's, I'm going to have a corn plant. If it's a wheat, it's going to be wheat. What I plant is what I sow. I can't sow one thing and expect to get something else. That's the way it is with disobedience or obedience in our lives. The second thing about reaping and sowing is that from the time I put the seed in the ground to the time that I have a harvest, there's a period of time. And so immediately it doesn't show up what the, what the, um, what the results of that sowing are. There's a period of time between the reaping and sowing, or the sowing and reaping. That's the way it is with disobedience. There's a period of time. And the third thing about reaping and sowing is that you always reap more than you sow. That's the whole idea of, of agriculture, is you plant a seed and you get back several hundred seeds or several thousand seeds. That's great when you're sowing righteousness. That's not a good thing when we're sowing disobedience. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. Reaping and sowing, partial disobedience, it ended up having great consequences for them. And then the last thing that I see, and I, and I think that this, this troubled me as much as, as anything that I saw in these first couple chapters. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. We read this verse earlier. Seeds of trouble. After that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What happened? What happened between those generations? Why would an entire generation that had seen the miracles of God firsthand not pass that along to the next generation? What happened? Well, think about their circumstances. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. That generation died off. New generation was on the banks of the Jordan River. That generation went in under the leadership of Joshua. And for 20 plus years, they were in battle. They were in conflict with their neighbors, pushing out the people militarily that God had, had told them to, to conquer. Now, they were at peace, a place of contentment. They could live in their own homes. They didn't go out, have to go out and fight every day. They didn't go have to go out and, and gather manna every day. They were comfortable. And in that comfort, they didn't keep the tenacity of the reality of God and His faithfulness in the past before the next generation. They were passive. They just thought that they'd pick it up by, by being around them. You know, the reality is there's a law of human nature that we, we don't like to think about. If I come forward and I step off at the front of this stage, we all know what's going to happen. I'm going down. Why do I go down? It's called the law of gravity. We can count on that being true. When we go from one place to another, gravity sets in. Some of us, gravity is more of a force than others, but gravity sets in. It's a law. In the spiritual sense, we have to understand that there's a law that's just as strong as gravity that is inherent in every human born since the time of Adam, and that's the law of depravity. And that law says that unless God intervenes, 
by the power of his spirit and the shed blood of Jesus Christ in my life, I'm going to stand under and experience the judgment of God, and I'm going to go the way of my sinful nature. It is just as certain as walking off that step and gravity sticking in. And we don't want to believe that. When we see our kids and, and they're little and they're precious and they say cute things and, and, and we don't like to think that, that they're, they're sinful. But that's a reality of the human heart. And unless we understand that, that that's the natural course of mankind and we intervene and we, we speak truth into their lives and we put them in places where God can open their eyes, the next generation will not walk in the way of the current generation. We're one generation away from losing everything. Think about in that, the reality of that in our society, in our country. A couple of generations ago, how it was everybody went to church. Everybody had a personal faith. Everybody knew about the Bible. And now, when you visit with people, there's more people that don't know anything about God, have no religion or faith or anything in their background. Why is that? Because we've become comfortable. And we don't honestly believe that that's the natural law of mankind. Romans chapter 8 talks about creation and its bondage to decay. It's talking about that in the, in the creation, in the physical world, but it's also true in the spiritual world. From the time that Adam and Eve fell and creation and sin entered the world and the curses of God that came along with that, we live in a fallen world. Anything in creation that is left to itself does not get better. If you don't take care of your lawn, if you don't fertilize, if you don't kill the weeds, is it better next summer than it was this summer? No. That's the way it is with us. If we don't allow the power and the intervention of God in our lives and, and promote that and teach the next generation that passivity, they're going to go the way of their nature. And so that's why it's so important that we teach our kids and our grandkids and, and we, we have son kids to, to help the parents teach kids the way of the Lord. Because if we don't, they'll go the way of their nature. That's just the way it is in a fallen world. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. That generation became comfortable and they didn't train the next. And that was seeds of trouble. That was seeds of trouble. As we go on in the book, we're going to look at various judges and, and how God used their individual personalities and gifts in different ways. But the reality is I, I want us to take away from part of the reason I believe that God puts this book in the Bible is because the things and the realities that we see in the nation are a reality for us in our personal walk. And those tendencies and that cycle of sin and, and incomplete obedience and, and our passivity, those are things that, that we wrestle with those realities every day. And as we look at the nation of Israel, it's my prayer that it will become an example for us to examine in our personal lives, in our family lives, in, in the mission that we have as a church in our community, that, that we won't fall into those cycles and those patterns, but we'll be active about promoting and sharing the message of the intervening mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for the reality of your word. 
Father, some days we read it and it encourages our heart and it just causes our spirits to soar. And other days it's heavy because it reminds us of our sin, reminds us of the reality of the, the sin that dwells within our hearts. So I pray, Father, that, that we'd be encouraged today by your mercy and grace, that you've made a way that we could be made right in your eyes through the, the death of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be overwhelmed by your mercy, by the fact that Israel time and time again went through this pattern of, of sinfulness, and yet time and time again, you delivered them, you picked them up, you dusted them off, and you set them back on a straight path. And Father, that's the reality of our Christian walk. Not a day goes by that I don't fall before you, that I don't walk away from you, that I don't make a sinful choice. And yet I can come and the blood of Jesus cleanses me from that. And you set me back on the path, encourage me to go on my way. Father, may we be stand in awe of your mercy and grace this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down, and every chain will break, his broken hearts declare his praise, for who can stop the Lord